Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I wanted to note for you all that this episode was recorded well before times of coronavirus. So you're not going to hear any mention of it. And for some of you, I imagine you're going to be like, thank God, I'm tired of hearing about this shit. And truthfully, I am too. But I also just want to note for people when they're like, why aren't they talking about this big thing that's going on in the world? This is why we're not talking about it because it didn't happen yet. But I am really excited to share this conversation with Adina Bankalese. So Adina is an internationally recognized speaker, author, trainer, and consultant, providing a fresh and important look at traumatic stress, addiction treatment, and recovery. She's the author of Covert Emotional Incest, The Hidden Sexual Abuse, A Story of Hope and Healing, as well as 12 Healing Steps for Adult Survivors of Childhood Sexual Abuse, A Practical Guide. Her passion is to utilize action methods in both client treatment and professional training to optimize laughter while learning. And you'll definitely hear a lot of laughter in this conversation that we had. And I really hope you enjoy my interview with Adina Bankleys. Hello, Adina. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It is awesome to be with you. Yeah. Yes, I've been looking forward to this. Oh, yay, me too. I wanted to tell listeners how we met because a, a lot of the questions I get from people are, you know, how do you choose your guests? And usually the universe chooses them for me. And you were one of those. I went to visit a treatment center called Sierra Tucson in Arizona, and you were leading one of the workshops that we got yes. to do. And and I just really loved the work and just loved your personality and asked you if you would be interested in being on the show. And you said, yes. Yes. Because I say yeah. yes to most things. I'm I'm a big yes person. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful to be able to know when to say yes and say yes when I mean yes and know when mm-hmm. I mean no today. That's yeah. part of the wounded healer piece. Right. Healing the woundedness. Absolutely. So why don't you tell people, I'm sure it's not the only thing you do is is work with uh, therapists at CR Tucson, right? So <laughs> so please tell us who you are and what you do. Thank you so much. All right. So As my dad taught me, you always introduce yourself first, which means you have to say your name. So I'll say it again. My name is Mm -hmm. Adina Bankleys, and I am a loving, excited mother. I am a passionate, caring, and committed partner. I am a devoted and boundary daughter. I am a... (laughs) I love that. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I am a compassionate, empathic direct, honest, yet not shaming, an empowering psychotherapist, a dynamic and passionate speaker trainer, and a very excited and curious program development person and consultant. So I play many different roles. Those are only a few, mm-hmm. of course, but the mm-hmm. ones that I think are most pertinent for our conversation right now. And and I would also say that I am somebody with many, many parts to them that does not equal multiple personality disorder or what we call <laughs> right. dissociative identity disorder, right. just to be clear. But I agree with Dr. Richard Schwartz, who's the founder of Internal Family Systems Therapy, mm-hmm. that multiplicity is naturally human. And so I have many, many parts, and I've done a lot of healing on those parts. And one of the things I've learned most recently is that there are no parts that will be fully, totally healed, and I'll never have to deal with them again. 
Right. It's just been so important because for so many things mm-hmm. like, oh, the trauma will be resolved. Do EMDR and it's resolved. Do this and it's resolved. And, right. and I have not found that. The truth of what I found, which is an important part of who I am, mm-hmm. because I share my experience, strength and hope as part of my therapy and training and all that, is that I can do healing with. But it's for me, it's never done. But it doesn't run my life the way it used to. Right. My parts don't get activated as often when they do. It doesn't usually last as long as it has lasted. Sometimes Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. not even as intense. Sometimes it is. But I have the tools to get back into my wise self, adult self, whatever you want to call it at this point, much faster than I ever could. And I'm hoping to continue this journey. And for your listeners also, I want to say that I really believe that every good therapist has a therapist. Damn straight. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Whenever I say that, and I always tell my students, like, you need to get a therapist. And the ones who are like, "Mm?" I'm like, I'm watching you. (laughs) I do not trust you. (laughs) And being a psychodramatist, Sarah, what I say is, You have to have role reversed with your client, Mm -hmm, not have mm -hmm. the exact same things as them, but to make the first phone call to reach out for help, to sit in the office the first time, to sit across from someone and start telling your story, to be vulnerable with somebody else who you don't know. Like Mm -hmm. if we don't, we've never been in this role. How do we have any kind of empathic connection, which helps to build on our therapeutic alliance? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to hear kind of the origin story. I think, you know, when we choose our professions or more likely our professions really choose us, I think mm-hmm. hearing the development of, of how people get there is, is usually so rich. So I'd love to hear what made you become a therapist? How'd you get there? You got it. So I've been a therapist since I was about three. One of my roles in my family was to be mediator and marriage counselor. Mm. And so I've been doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was assigned by my family system. I like to say it that way. And (laughs) it's a very kind way to say that. Yes. (laughs) Very non-blaming. Exactly. Uh So, and I do believe family, it is a systemic thing. And so the system chose that role for me, put me in that role in order for my family to function the way Mm -hmm. it needed to. I took on the role. I think my personality is, I wouldn't call myself an empath, but I do say that I have great empathy for others. I really can, psychodrama term would be double them, which is Mm -hmm. you really feel Mm -hmm. with their heart, think with their brain, walk in their shoes. I think I'm really good at that. And that is one of the it's, the big IT, I think, to be a psychotherapist. I think it's important that we have that. Yeah. And so that role and... I grew up in a family, my dad was a a school psychologist, and I was always the one people came to for advice, for listening. So again, I did it in my family. I did it with my friends. And then when I was 14, I said, I'm going to be a psychologist and I'm going to work with teenagers and I want to do family work. And the reason that came up was because I entered therapy at 14. We did family work. So anything that was happening for me is like, okay, this is really amazing. And I really want to help other people here. And what I came to, and I always love to tell this story. So I go and I get my bachelor's and I go and I get my master's. And I come here from New York to Tucson, which is where I live now in practice. And I had a supervisor and it was the first person after my master's degree. And he said, so why did you become a therapist in the first place? And I said, because I want to help people. 
And he just looked me straight in the face. He said, bullshit. And I was like, whoa. And he said, uh-huh. I want you to I want you to continue in your therapy. I want you to do, and I want you to ask that question. I want you to find out really why you became a therapist. So right. the bottom line is I couldn't fix my family. I tried and I tried. I tried better. Yep. I tried harder. I did, you know the story. Oh, yep. Same story. <laughs> and I had a black mm-hmm. hole that I mm-hmm. used to describe that was in my core. And I thought if I could fix other people, then that black hole would go away. I would feel good about myself. I would have confidence. I would feel worthwhile. I would have a purpose and everything would be fine. So did I fix anybody? No. So what happened as I'm, I'm with this mindset, trying to do this as a therapist, people didn't listen to my advice because I gave a lot of advice. I thought that's what you do in therapy. People didn't listen. They came back and didn't do their homework. You know, they did. And I would just get really mad. Like, why are you coming to me if you're not listening to me? Right, right. And so the hole got bigger and deeper. Mm. And I hit a bottom with what I call my codependency, which is the fixer role, mediator role, right? And trying to get my worth from outside of myself. And I went to treatment and I went to not Sierra Tucson, but a place like that for five weeks. And I learned about this thing called boundaries that I had never heard that (laughs) word before in my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When I came back out of treatment and I said to Ed, I said, now I know it's the black hole. It's this. He goes, okay, now we have some place to start from. Yeah. And so I really have learned. And that was 1990. So that was a long time Mm. ago. And I've learned over the last 30 years and continue to learn about how to be with people and how to help guide them by continuing to check in with them. Because I really believe Richard Schwartz says we all have a self with a capital S. Mm -hmm. And psychodrama says we have an autonomous healing center. And Buddha says we have a wise self. So my thing Mm -hmm. is, how do I help someone get reconnected with that part of them? Intuition, their gut, whatever you want. I don't care whatever you want to call it. Because they have all the answers. I don't. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking about the things that we learn as therapists. And for me, I can say that most of it is I have to learn it from the inside out. It doesn't work if I just read a book and I'm like, oh, boundaries. Okay. I should teach my clients how to have good boundaries. It wasn't until I started going to Al-Anon for some of that boundary work and that I became a different therapist because I realized then how much I was overworking in the therapy relationship, right? And a lot of what we learn is so different than what we're taught in our families, so different than what we're taught in general society, right? And I I always try to tell clients when I'm working with them in in a treatment center space that what we're teaching you is counter to what's going to happen when you come home. And it's really, it's hard to maintain a lot of this unless you are surrounding yourself with other people who are doing this work too. Exactly. Exactly. Because the system is so powerful. And Mm -hmm. we talk about the, just the nuclear family, the extended family, then the culture. It's so powerful to want you to go back to your old role because that's how it functioned. And that's how the, the mobile was balanced, right? So absolutely. And we can't do this alone. Right. And what I've been really recognizing more, I guess it's like a picture is like coming into more view for me with the the more trauma work that I do personally and professionally of really healing the lineage of all of the pain that's just gone on in all of our families for so long. Yes. The transgenerational, multi-generational trauma. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's really important. And to recognize that when we are doing our own work right here, right now, January 26, 2020, we are healing the generations before us. I really believe that. And we're changing and shifting our DNA as that's happening. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you 100%. Yeah. And I think that psychodrama work has a really unique way of doing that. I'd love for you to to tell listeners, we did have Jean Campbell on the podcast, so she talked a little bit about it, but I'd love to hear from your perspective too. Like what drew you to that work? How do you utilize that within this sort of systemic thing that we're talking about? Okay. Well, first I want to just tell your listeners, if they didn't hear Jean's interview, that psychodrama, it means the soul in action. Mm-hmm. The soul in action. So what, what I heard, one of my mentors called it the stories of the soul in action. So we get to tell our stories on the stage. We get to tell our stories and make them concrete by having people and things play roles for those pieces. Mm-hmm. So it's other parts of me. It's other people in my life. It could be the painting on the wall that saw all the fighting or all the lovemaking for all the years. Mm. And if I'd be in that role, I could say, what have I seen in this room? Mm-hmm. What have I noticed in this room? So telling my story and changing my story yeah. if necessary. So we help people change the endings of the stories so that we can be empowered, so that we can live right now and really enjoy our life instead of having the trauma run mm-hmm. my life. And this, the stories of the trauma we know biologically, neurobiologically get stuck and the loop and the loop and the loop. Right. So psychodrama is in there with not saying, well, let's think about this. It's we're doing it. So it's hitting all levels of your brain because you're moving, you're thinking, you're feeling, you're sensing, and it provides the locking in of learning so that you can take it out of the office or wherever you happen to do your drama into your life and practice it because it's in your cells now. It's not a theory. You're living it. And when you said that we we change the ending to the stories, I want to note for listeners that I think the important nuance here is that you're not changing the narrative cognitively because what you just said, right, it gets locked in because when you're utilizing any sort of somatic work in therapy, it's a different experience. And we know that trauma doesn't live in the prefrontal cortex. It lives in the deeper parts of the brain, which is what are activated when we're using any sort of somatic modality. So so the changing the story isn't a, I am setting out to change the story. It is an organic process that comes from the work, which is what is the magic of it. Yes. And that's a beautiful way to say it. And so it's an integrative change. And that's what makes it so powerful. So when you ask the question about what led me to psychodrama, when I graduated my master's program, there was no class on psychodrama. And they never even acknowledged Jacob Moreno, who was the founder of psychodrama. And one of the, some people say he was the founder of group psychotherapy. I don't know if that's actually a fact, but I know he was one of the pioneers in that, no question about it. And so I was bored because we were doing mostly cognitive behavioral therapy. And I was like, this is really boring. And if this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life, I picked the wrong thing. And again, we're talking about the late 80s now. So the decade of the brain didn't happen yet. It was it was budding, but you know we didn't have all that brain research. Daniel Siegel, Bessel van der Kolk was just starting. And so I found out about an internship at a treatment center in Pennsylvania called the Karen Foundation, C-A-R-O-N. And a good friend of mine was going to do an internship there. We went and interviewed. And 
they did psychodrama there. It was all experiential. It was a five and a half day residential experiential program for adult children of alcoholics. But of course, you got people who were traumatized. And I said, my God, this is it. This is what I want to do. I got so jazzed. I got so excited and passionate. And so that was my the start of my journey. And then when I came here in Tucson, there's a woman, her name is Dina Baumgartner, and she was a trainer here. And I spent 10 years training with her. And then I went to conferences and did all kinds of things. And now I'm, I'm training internationally. I got my certification for your listeners. Psychodrama is, people think of it as role-playing. Mm-hmm. And what I want them to hear is it's a whole lot more than that. Much deeper. Much deeper. It's something really to be careful and trauma-informed about. Yeah. Because we open up people very quickly. And if we don't know how to help them close and stabilize, if we want to call it that, nervous system regulation, people are very dysregulated. We help Mm -hmm. them regulate. If I don't know how to do that, I'm really re-traumatizing people. And so I'm a certified psychodramatist. I was practicing 25 years before I got the actual piece of paper Mm -hmm. because of the rigorous hoops that you have to jump through. Yeah, it is a serious training program. (laughs) It is a serious training and there's a reason for it and it's personal work. You have to be Mm -hmm. in a psychodrama training group for a certain number of hours. If you have a master's degree, it's 680 training hours. Right. And when you're in that, you do your personal work because we really believe that that's, we're the change agents and we can't take our clients anywhere we haven't gone. Yeah. Right now, that's a bulk of what I'm doing, actually, Sarah, is mm-hmm. I'm contracting at Sierra Tucson right now. I'm running five psychodrama groups there. And I run another group. There's an indigent women's treatment center here in mm. Tucson. And I'm just privileged to be able to work with these Native American women and mm. Latina women. And you don't talk about multi-generational. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yep. Then I'm able to do psychodrama with them is is really an honor and a privilege. So I get to do that. And mm-hmm. I'm in my mm-hmm. in a private practice here. It's very small now because I'm doing more consulting. This year is my real move out into consulting where I'll be helping to develop inpatient trauma programs, outpatient mm-hmm. trauma programs, kind of trauma addiction. Yeah. Because we know they go hand in hand. Absolutely. And I love to present at conferences and I've been doing that for a while. And so just really excited and I'm at the time of my life where I get to really travel also. That's awesome. So big questions here. So it seems like trauma is the new thing, right? The treatment centers are finally starting to understand, oh, we haven't been doing that. We should probably do that. (laughs) Why has it taken so long? And still, I think places like Sierra Tucson are unfortunately pretty unique in the way that they do approach trauma. I think a lot of places would say they're trauma-informed, and I don't know that that's actually <laughs> being enacted, right? So what do you think has taken so long? Why Why do you think that the field hasn't all along been like, oh, duh, of course, this is why everyone's addicted and mental health issues and all of it? Well, back in the 80s, we're talking about 85, 86, I was a case manager. It was on Long Island, and it was the age of what they call deinstitutionalization. Mm-hmm. So Long Island had three very large state psychiatric hospitals that they housed thousands of people in. And then they said, you know what, this is not working because they found out about abuses and things like that. And they said, we got to get people back into the community. So they started to have these group homes where people who are chron- seriously mentally ill, chronically mentally ill, mm-hmm 
with diagnoses like schizophrenia, psychotic, anyway. And so as a case manager, I was someone to help liaison to the community for them, take them to doctor's appointments, help integrate them into the community. And I remember going to a conference and it was a conference of substance abuse and mental health. And what uh, Dr. Bert Pepper was very famous on Long Island, and he said, we have to get these two fields together. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, they were not. Substance abuse was a drunk, is counseling a drunk. It's an AA model. It's a 12-step model. And that's it. And mental health is something totally separate. And I think the, well, I came out here in 90 to work at Sierra Tucson. Sierra Tucson opened in 87. And they had the model of combining trauma with addiction. They were, I think, one of the first in this country to do that. It was a really innovative model. And Bill O'Donnell actually went to the Meadows and got treatment for cocaine addiction. And he said, I want to start a treatment center. And he had the money to do it. He comes from a very wealthy family. And he started Sierra Tucson. And he modeled it after the Meadows. And so that's why these two were probably the premier treatment centers at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, to do this very incredible work, experiential work. They used psychodrama. There was equine therapy trying to think of some of the other things we had. I can't right now. But I think there was very rigid ideas in the substance abuse community about what would be helpful to them. And that was the 12 steps. The 12 steps were, was such an incredible, mind-blowing, life-changing paradigm. And it had worked for so many people. That research had to be done. And I think the decade of the brain, the 90 to 2000, was huge in that to say, wait a second, this is what's happening and this is the manifestation. And somebody like Gabor Mate now who's talking about this, getting attention. I think people were afraid and I think people were rigid and I think people were ignorant. Yeah. And there's still people, you know what? Just do your fourth step. What are you delving into that stuff for? Just do your fourth step. It's like, no, there are people that works for, absolutely. But the people who I see, it wasn't enough. It helped and it continued to help. You know, you and I got Al-Anon, right? I mean, I couldn't do my job without Al-Anon. I, could, I right. couldn't, but it's not enough. And I'm grateful for people like Bessel van der Kolk and Siegel and Alan Shore. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for them. I think too, what I've noticed with my clients when they get sober, if they're doing this stuff, like going to their meetings and we've got a robust community of, of refuge recovery and smart recovery. So I'm like, not definitely just 12 steps. So if people are doing their thing and and doing all of the regular maintenance that they need to do to take care of themselves, somebody who is, quote unquote, just an alcoholic gets better. But what I find for my clients with trauma is that once they get sober, even if they're doing all the work, they don't get better because the trauma is what needs to be addressed. And that's the piece where, you know, I, I hate to hear if a client tells me like, oh, yeah, my sponsor just said, do my fourth step again or whatever. And I, I just I hate to hear when that happens because, yeah, like I, I wish 12 step was more informed. And I know there is a book that recently came out that's really critical of 12 step. And I want to hold space for that. It's not the 12 steps themselves. It's really the actors. It's the people who are harming each other by having this fear of, you know, well, if something else works for you and this worked for me, then that somehow takes away from my experience, which we know that that's not true. But I think that's the fear that you were talking about, right? Yes, I think so. And we as humans, 
get stuck in if something works for me, that's the right way. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you need to do it that way. And if you don't, you're going to get drunk. Or if you find something else, you know, you don't keep coming to meetings, then you're going to drink. Now, for a lot of people, that's true. But for not everybody, that's true. I think, well, we're motivated by fear, right? We have the negative bias evolutionarily, and we're scared. And so I think that is underneath some of that stuff. And I really like what you said about your clients. And what I hope for people in 12-step program, that when they're sponsors, that they can take a look at the book, the big book, and where it says, utilize outside help when necessary, because we don't have the answer for everything. Like if you want to get rid of the obsession, I'll just say AA because there's so many 12-step programs. If you want to get rid of the mental obsession and the physical craving and be able to live a more peaceful life, right? That's what AA does. And if you have this trauma that's going to get in the way, then there's outside help for that. You need this something else. And so that's my piece is, can we be more open-minded? And I think as human beings, we get stuck as we're seeing in our country and the world right now. Right. I know there is, I feel like I've been doing a lot of anti-racism training and exploration for myself. And I feel like things are coming to the surface right now. The trauma of this country is really emerging in a way that is so painful for everyone, but I'm assuming especially for, for people of color, other marginalized populations, right? And collectively, we have to do our trauma work. Exactly. And that's another piece of psychodrama somatically oriented. Mm -hmm. We have to collectively, we have to do it. We have to heal as a species. And that's the other thing just to say, if we're, you know, wounded healer right now in my office with my clients, and I know it's true for me that there is this underlying, this current of fear that's going on because politically what's happening in the world, I just don't want to say we live in the United States. So, but it's really in the world. And it's always there. And one of the pieces I've been doing education about is how do we manage to be informed? So we're not sticking our head in the sand. We're informed and we're taking positive action, which I think is really important, and yet not overwhelmed and not re-traumatized by what's happening. So if I'm stuck on my Facebook page all the time and reading all the political stuff, I notice for myself the activation that happens and I start having negative thoughts and I start feeling hopeless and helpless. And so I'm practicing, how do I manage that and still stay in, my words were, to find an action that has concrete value Mm. for the better good and the highest good for all. Mm -hmm. And those are the things I'm focusing my energy on because otherwise I think we can spread ourselves way too thin. I don't want to spin my wheels. And I think as therapists, for me, I can speak for myself, part of why I became a therapist is because I just, I didn't have boundaries and I thought I just had to give myself away to everybody. Right. And we know now that that's, that's not helpful and that's not true. Mm-hmm. And it, because it feels like such a crisis and it is a crisis. I'm not going to say it feels like we are in crisis right now. And you're right. It is everywhere in the world, but this country's history is unique in the colonization and genocide and all of these things that we really don't look at on a regular basis. Whew. So yeah, so there, it can be really overwhelming. The thing that I, so I've been training in this modality called NARM, Neuroaffective Relational Model. Okay. And the listeners have heard me talk about it way too much, but I don't care. I'm going to talk about it again. One of the pieces of NARM that I found so personally helpful is a recognition of agency. And I pair that with Al-Anon's saying that we have choices. And 
when I'm able to recognize my agency, recognize that that it's naturally there. I don't have to like construct it when I naturally kind of let my awareness rest on agency and then bring that piece in about I have choices. I have choices of what I do today. Just like you said, like things that you want to do that are conscious and that are making an impact as much as you can in the world. Like that is a way of taking responsibility, just enough responsibility and not over responsibility which those of us who are who are essentially wired for codependency because of our family of origin, that's what I am want to do is to take too much responsibility. Yes. And then get totally burnt out yes. and cynical and angry and depressed and, and then help no one. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then help no one. Right. And right. so I'm very committed to not do that. And I really like, you know, like what you said. And one of the things we, we always say, we're in recovery. We have choices to remind people because right. The trauma says, no, you don't. Because when we were little kids, if it happened in childhood, we didn't. We were victims. We were powerless. We didn't have the choice. And we do, if we're talking about adults, and we do have choices today that we didn't have then. And I think that's really important. I, I don't work with kids or adolescents, but I work with adults who have kid and adolescent parts. So I work with kids and adolescents in an adult body. <laughs> right. Yeah. And truthfully, if you're a therapist, that's what we're all doing. So to remind us, you know, one of my jobs, I think, is to remind that we have choices to provide choices. So Mm -hmm. just for example, whenever I'm doing work with someone, I always say that there are no have to's when you work with me. Mm -hmm. There are only are you willing to's. Mm -hmm. And those words are even important. It's not I want you to. It's Mm -hmm. because it's not about me. I'm inviting you to. I'm supporting you and checking in with your heart and your gut because they don't lie to you. Your head can lie to you. And if anything I'm asking doesn't fit for you, and there's a no, N-O, that's a complete sentence here. And so right off the bat, there's choice. And what I find, and I just did did, did a group on Thursday, after we did this exercise, and people said, I did not want to do that. I absolutely did not want to do that. But you know what? You said we didn't have to. So I was willing. And then when I saw the other group members do it, I went, okay, if they did it, you know, I can do it. And I said, so you can be willing to do something you don't want to do. Yeah. I said, that's thriving because my group is called Surviving to Thriving. So that's thriving. Mm, That's wonderful. So I'm curious how you feel about the term healer as it applies to your work. I am a channel. I'm a channel of wisdom and love. And that's really important for me to remember So healer, if I think about Native American due to the cultures that I'm here living with in Tucson, I really see them as channels of wisdom and love and powerful loving energy that can help to heal people. And I can accept that, that I'm one of those people who can be a channel of that. Mm -hmm. It is not me who does it. And that goes back to the, I could fix people and it's all about my ego. And when it doesn't happen, then I feel like crap because then I didn't do X and I wasn't good enough. And so it's not that. And one of the things that I do before session is I ask universe creator, whatever you want to call it, to be a channel of wisdom and love and to have the session be of the highest good for us all. And when I set that intention, and I do that as a director of psychodrama, because it's not, something comes through me, Sarah, really, like I get, I get flashes of things, I get, I get statements that come in, I, when I'm in that moment, I am totally with that person. And that's what it is. And I see them healing in front of me, with me. So healer in terms of channel, not healer, because it's Adina. Mm -hmm. And I think 
when we're training therapists, we spend so much time on the science and the knowledge part. And no one is out there teaching intuition, right? And this channeling piece, which is the art of it. And that's one thing as a, as a, an educator, I really set out to share as much as I can with students about that piece of it, that if just thinking about it as a, con- if you want to do CBT and that's great, do it. We do need people to do that. And yet I think that we're missing the soul connection, right? If we're not utilizing that intuition, I get the same. I, I'll get, I don't really hear words. It's just knowing, just a knowing comes in of something. And so I might share like, hey, I just got this hit. Does this mean anything to you? And oftentimes it's, yeah, there was something else that if I weren't listening to that, I would miss that really important piece. Yes. And I think Dan Siegel would say that's the mind because the mind happens in between my nervous system and your nervous system. So if if I am in role reversal with you, which is a psychodrama turn, so I'm really present with my client and I'm empathic, psychodrama would say, so I am doubling the person or I'm in role reversal with them, that those things are going to come to me. And I have knowings, finishing people's sentences in my head, and then they say it, right? (laughs) Mm-hmm, I'm learning mm-hmm. to not interrupt people. I came from a house where everybody talked over everybody, and you know, yeah, that's how I like to. Yeah, I have to try to stick back on that as well. Mm-hmm. Right, but yes, so that intuition, that sensing, and being still mm-hmm. and breathing slowly and deeply as I am with my client, I think allows that to come up, allows it to happen. Mm-hmm. And then there's the piece of, so what's mine and my counter-transference and what's my doubling that I'm doing for the client? And I think that's, for your listeners, I think that's a skill that we develop over time when we have good supervision and consultation that's trauma-informed, which means I have choices. I'm safe enough to be able to share this with my supervisor and look at what's going on in me. What's the client and their issues invoking in me rather than here's the client. Okay, this is what you do with them. That's not the consultation I do. I say, what's going on with you? And that's, you know, when I taught, that's what I was doing. And I love what you're teaching. We need more of that. And that's what I learned in psychodrama training was to follow that gut and intuition. Because when my anxiety is high, my spontaneity is low. Right. So how do you feel about the term wounded healer? I think it's a stage that I have been through. Mm. I don't see myself as wounded anymore. Mm -hmm. I have parts that are wounded, but me as a whole, no. And I believe that was an important stage and identity for me to have and to move through, which is my own personal work and my consultation and supervision and continued education, which I continue to do all of those anyway. So I think it's an important role to take because if I don't identify it, I really can't work on it. If I'm not conscious of it, I probably can't do much about it. So to make that conscious, to own that, yeah, I have wounds and I am in the process of assisting other people to heal. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so interesting after asking this question, you know, a hundred times, whenever somebody does not 
want to endorse that as a way of being right now, right? I'm not a wounded healer right now. It's always that there's always something about the word wounded and having issue with that. Someone said before too, like if wounded is a state of being, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But like you said, it's this process to go through for everyone. I like that. I like that viewpoint. And I have those parts that say, I don't want anything to do with that either. But at this point, I'm not trying to avoid it. I'm owning that I have parts of me that have been wounded, that are still wounded because they get locked in time. We know that too. So my three-year-old just knows that she's three. And my job at 57 is to update her that we're in an adult body. It's January 20. Like we have skills, we have tools, we have a refuge in our home. We don't live where we used to, that, et cetera, et cetera. But I hear the reticence for that. And I want to embrace that that was a stage. I want to embrace that parts of me are wounded. It's important for me to not take on that full identity right now and to say that I've done a lot of work and that I am well, because if I, for me, this is just for me, if I am still a wounded healer, that will keep me in the wound. Oh, I hear that completely. And that's that's what's so fascinating about, you know, the English language we still have words to describe things, but they mean very different things to very different people. And it really is based on our own journey. And again, like how words inform then how we perform, <laughs> for lack of a better word, right? We're talking about psychodrama. That's right. And the meaning that we make of that. And what does that mean to us? And that's another piece in terms of being a therapist and even a trainer and teacher is it's really important for us to say, what's your definition of, right? So for trauma, I have to forgive. I trained therapists all over the country for 10 years from 94 to 04. And I had a whole thing on forgiveness. And I said, what the heck is it anyway? And what is it not? And those were the things. It's not forgetting. It's not absolving of sin. It's not saying it's okay you did what you did. It's not kiss, kiss, makeup, nice, nice. Because that's when you say about society, that's societal, what we have to do, just forgive and forget. And no. And so I came up with a definition that I offer people. And still a client said to me, do I have to? I said, absolutely not. You never have to do anything. She said, I'm not willing to be, you don't have to be. You don't have what, to be. No. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. So what you get to do, again, if you choose, is to see how your choice impacts you. What are the pros and the cons? Exactly. So I, I feel like forgiveness is something, again, kind of like when you were talking earlier about changing the narrative. The narr You don't change the narrative. The narrative just changes because it arises out of the work you do. And I think about that with forgiveness as well is if forgiveness is my destination, I'm probably not going to allow myself the depth of experience I need to have to get there because I'm just focused on that goal. But if I'm doing the work to take care of myself, because if I'm angry at someone and I'm just living in that wound of anger, I am not healing, <laughs> right? So it's, I think forgiveness is such that is definitely some wounding from my my religious history that I, I really struggle with, you know, being told to be a good girl, you should forgive, you know, just forgive and forget anybody that hurts you. And that can be really damaging. Agreed. And I've seen it be extremely damaging. Yeah. So for us to dispel that and to really challenge those messages for our clients, I think is critical. 
And again, not to tell them because they've been told enough, but to offer them the choice, offer them, this is a different way to look at it. Take what you like, leave the rest. That's when I see that people will more likely take that because there doesn't have to be the protection or the rebellion about me telling them what to do so they don't put their mother or father's head on my shoulders or the church or this or that. And I do want to share with you, if it's okay, just one, I want to share with you what the definition of forgiveness that I came up with. Yeah, please. And that is that forgiveness is a process. And I think it's a grieving process of feeling all my feelings and understanding. So when you talked about generational, doing my genograms, looking at the history, looking at the patterns, understanding the wounds of the people who hurt me getting that information. So it's the feeling, it's the understanding, it's the grieving of the losses of the hopes and the dreams and the, you know, I wish my childhood was like this. It wasn't, I can't go back, but I got to grieve that. And at some point to make the choice, I'm not going to hold on to this anger. There are times when it's a cognitive choice. I agree with you more. It's, I want to work on this and I want this to not be part of me. So I'm willing to do this work and it organically happens that there is a release and I have freedom. Yeah, so that's awesome. Well, for folks who I get feedback from people who are budding therapists themselves and for people who might be interested in, in learning more about psychodrama, where do you suggest people go to find that? Let's see. I would say psychodramacertification.org, which is the website where you can find a psychodramatist, find training, etc. You can go to asgpp.org. That's the American Society for Group Psychotherapy and Psychodrama. That's our professional organization. And there are some definitions of psychodrama there. You find out about conferences. And there are so many resources and books out there where if you want to go on Amazon and put in psychodrama. And anybody can shoot me an email, adina at adinabanklees.com. You can ask me for resources. I can put you in touch with people. I'm, I love that role. It's a role I didn't yeah. tell you. So I'm a resource fanatic. So yes. I love to set people up with things. So feel free to do that. You can go to my website. Wonderful. Well, as, as we wrap up, is there anything, I mean, we talked about a ton of stuff, but is there anything that you didn't share that you, you feel like you want to give voice to before we close out? I do. I would like to just put out the term that is my passion and what I teach so much about is called covert emotional incest. And you want to talk about wounding. Yes. And so the book that I did write that got published a couple of years ago is called Covert Emotional Incest. Mm -hmm. People are interested. It's on Amazon. You can go to my website. I have a YouTube channel where I have a video really giving you some good examples of that. I've gotten good feedback. So if it's not a term you're familiar with, I think it's really important. I think it's important for therapists, for our own history and for our clients to look at something that's not tangible. It's not physical sexual abuse. But people who've experienced that covert emotional can have the same kinds of signs and symptoms and we might miss it. I don't want anybody missing it. Yep. What my therapist and I called it for myself was energetically sexually abused because it wasn't, I, no one was touched, but my father's sexual energy was very leaky. And it was very clear to me that being a woman he couldn't have sex with, he didn't know what to do with me. I like that a lot. That really fits, doesn't it? Because that's what I talk about, the sexual energy. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, thank you for for giving voice to that because it is something I I really struggled with for a long time personally of like, why do I have some of these symptoms, like you said, and yet I'm pretty sure I wasn't, which is probably what led to, I mean, we're opening up a whole other can of worms now, right, to close out. But in the 80s to these like, you know, repressed memories resurfacing for people because there was probably energetic or emotional incest happening that we didn't name. So very, very important. We have another conversation in us then, don't we? Yeah, I guess we do. (laughs) That's great. Well, Adina, thank you. This has been so wonderful. I just really appreciate you and your time. Same here. Thank you so much. And I just for any of your listeners, I hope it was helpful and um, I'm available. Great. Thanks, Adina, for sharing your time today. To find out more information about Adina, we've got all of her goodies on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Also wanted to note, if you are interested in supporting the podcast financially, you can find us on Patreon at Wounded Healer, and that's Wounded, W-O-U-N. Oh, I can't spell wounded. Why am I trying to spell in the air? I know better than that. I can't spell it in the air, but I can tell you it's healer without the last E. So (laughs) H-E-A-L-R. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Till next time. Bye-bye.